0: If you bring up the Bible in normal conversation with people, the sorts of responses you're likely to get are maybe people will be curious, maybe they will be interested, but more likely they'll be tense, they'll be slightly embarrassed, and they'll probably be sceptical as well. Has anyone experienced that? No? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mainly embarrassed, you know, it's, it's a bit of an embarrassing thing to bring up in normal conversation. My question for you to discuss on your tables now is why why is it embarrassing when you bring up the Bible in conversation off you go, discuss on your tables yep, yep excellent, so we've got some great ideas there, a lot of that I haven't thought of as well which is really good, and I've categorised a lot of the reasons why people are embarrassed about the Bible into two groups really, first of all what's in the Bible either they don't know or they've heard things and they don't like it. They've heard there are rules, they've heard there are ethical problems, you know, maybe um, it's not respectful to women, or it promotes slavery, or what about that genocide, you know, in the early books of the Bible, this kind of stuff, so they don't like what's in the Bible. Or secondly, they don't like the Bible as a principle, as Dorothy was saying, they don't like the idea of us subjecting ourselves to a book. A book from the past, particularly. So, Those two categories, we've got others there about relationship as well, which are uh, great, and I'll be making a note of those later. So let's have a think, uh, particularly about the second of those two groups, the fact that they're embarrassed that we should put ourselves under the authority of a book. Because over the next weeks, we'll be talking about what's in the Bible, and a lot of the things people are embarrassed about in the Bible. So let's leave that for now and talk about the Bible as a whole you know, submitting yourself to an old book, that's embarrassing. Now, let's face it, sometimes we are embarrassed about the Bible. If we're in a big group of people and it turns out that, you know, uh, the conversation moves towards the fact that we're a Christian, it can be really hard to hold our ground and to say, well, the Bible says such and such about that particularly controversial issue that you're talking about at the moment. We can be embarrassed So I'm hoping that this evening will help you to understand why we're sometimes embarrassed and why we shouldn't be. And I also want to say that I'm going to be talking in broad brushstrokes. So we're going to be doing a little bit of history, a little bit of uh, how thought has developed over time and I'm going to be talking very broadly. There have always been different schools of thought. These are trends that explain a lot about a lot of the people you will meet and I hope that will be clear as we go through. Okay, so I'm going to look at three reasons why people are embarrassed about the Bible. Firstly, will be the way we think, and by we, I mean 21st century people in the UK. We're embarrassed about the Bible because of the way we think. Secondly, the story we tell ourselves about the way we think. Okay, stick with me. And thirdly, the way we understand spirituality. So the way we think the story we tell ourselves about the way we think and our understanding of spirituality all create an atmosphere where we're likely to be embarrassed about the Bible and we'll think about why. After that, we'll think about a different way to think where we can have confidence in the Bible. Okay, so first of all then, the way we think. The way we think in the 21st century in the UK is not the same as the way people think across the world. It's not the same as the way people think in Uzbekistan. And neither is it the way that people have thought throughout history. If you pick someone out of the 1600s and put the two of us together, we would think in different ways. So what's normal for us is not normal universally. And there's a history behind what we think is normal, the way we think that comes largely from a period of time in the 1600s called the Enlightenment. And I want to summarize a key change that took place in the Enlightenment that makes us think the way we think today. And I'm going to describe it as a switch, like that, okay? Two things switching places. Now, before we look at the switch, let's just make sure we do understand the way we think today. And this is why you've got the pictures of the ladies on uh, your tables. Three characters. Um, does anybody, let's, how shall I do this? Who knows who all three of them are? Yeah, a few people. <laughs> two people. Who knows who one or two of them are? Right, okay, I'm going to come around to the tables and give you a bit of help. <laughs> um, First of all, discuss what do these two characters have in, what do these three characters have in common? Okay, great. Can I uh, get you all together again? I'm not going to go around all the tables, but this table over here have hit the nail on the head. Um, so tell me, what do those three characters have in common? Gonzara. Thank you. They go against the grain of social norm. They all grow up in cultures that are trying to push something on them. In the case of the girl in the top left, her name is Lyra. And the bad guys in that particular show, His Dark Materials, are depicted as basically Roman Catholic priests. And they are inflicting their religious uh, authority on her and everybody else. And she rejects that and goes her own way. In the middle, we've got Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Belle is very well educated and loves to read. And the villagers are like, why would you want to read? That's ridiculous. And she rejects that, and she goes and reads. And then in the bottom left, you've got Mulan, who uh, is a warrior from ancient China at a time when only men fought in the army. And she goes and joins the army. So again, rejecting the culture. They're also all women, which of course is significant. It's a very, um, uh, there's a, a feminist agenda going on there, but that's fine. Like, <laughs> I'm not talking about that this evening, but that is significant. So... Um, I was going to ask, how are the cultures they reject portrayed? But as um, very few of you have, have seen all three of them, um, you could use your imagination. Basically, those cultures are inflicting beliefs and viewpoints and ways of living on these people, and they are rejecting them. It doesn't take much imagination to, uh, to understand that. They're, they're sort of oppressive. I've got a list of words here. They're oppressive. They're intolerant. They're dogmatic. They're wrong. They're old-fashioned. They're immoral. You get the idea. That's the culture, and these, these uh, sort of heroes here are rejecting that culture. Now, when we see these characters rebelling against their culture, as we watch these uh, films and TV shows, what are we supposed to think is the greatest virtue? What are they showing us that's so good about what they're doing? Have a think about that and just discuss it in your tables for a few minutes, and then I'll ask, what's the great virtue that they're portraying? Okay, can I wrap that one up? Just a very short conversation there. I've definitely heard the right answer from over here. <laughs> so what is the virtue that they are portraying? Becca, what did you say? I can't but it's something like... Be true to yourself, yeah. So freedom to be yourself and make your own choices. Be yourself, exactly. You control your destiny. You discover the truth for yourself. You don't let other people tell you what's true. You discover it. You don't uh, let anyone else tell you what to believe. You challenge old-fashioned values, particularly in the case of Mulan in the bottom left there. Why should men only join the army? You know, Why can't women join the army? That sort of stuff. You don't hold on to these values if they don't make sense. Now, those, th- those ideas describe the thinking of people after the enlightenment so if you had asked somebody all of this stuff before the enlightenment you'd have got a very different set of answers and each of these people would have been the villains these three women would have been the villains they did not go for the same things that we go for they didn't think in the same way in fact, you know, it's the, it's the flat opposite. Something changed in the Enlightenment that means they, the way they thought is the flat opposite of the way we think today. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. That is this switch, okay? Now, in normal language, the shift is from listening to others to listening to ourselves. But it's a bit more than that. So take that away. You know, if, if we... Um, If I explain the next bit badly and you don't follow, don't worry about it. Take it as listening to others has swapped to listening to yourself, yourself, okay? But it is a bit more than that. I've got a couple of boxes to help me, and I've used these boxes in church so many times since I got them. They've uh, stood me in good stead. Okay, these are a couple of uh, expressions, philosophical terms that I'm going to be talking about. The first one is ontology, which just means... The way things are, the the nature of being, what does it mean to exist? What is the universe? That's what ontology is, okay? The other one is epistemology, which is, how do we think about things? What questions do we ask? How do we discover things? It's about knowing. So this is about being, and this is about knowing. Now, before the Enlightenment, everyone took it for granted that ontology came first And epistemology came second. Which means, in practice, somebody told you what the universe was like and what existed and how it existed and whether there was a God or not. And as a result of that information, you decided how to think and you decided what questions to ask and how to examine the universe. In the Enlightenment, that switched. I'm checking my notes because I want to be precise here. Okay. Now, this will sound familiar to you because this is the way we think. We start with evidence and the information available to us and our science and our discoveries and our feelings and from all of that together we build a picture of what the universe is like. Can you see the difference? Now that Started uh, this, as I say, is a, a, a switch that took place in the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was a process that took a long time. It's generally considered to have been started by someone called Rene Descartes, who made the famous statement, "I think, therefore I am." You've probably come across that. Now, what Rene Descartes thought, he was um, he was a religious man. He was a Christian. He had fought in a war as a soldier in a, a war of values, a war of religion. And he'd been told by his religious authorities what to think, but then he saw that he was fighting against other um, people who had been told by their religious authorities what to think. And he thought, this is crazy. Like, we can't both be right. And I'm being told by so many different people what to believe and what to think. I'm going to go and lock myself in a room. I'm going to empty my mind of everything that everyone's telling me. And I'm going to discover. What it is that is true? What's the one thing I can discover for myself that is real? And what he came up with was, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I must exist because I'm a thinking thing. And that is where the switch took place. No longer was he listening to others first and then deciding about reality, about you know, what questions to ask reality afterwards. He had put himself first and knowing first and then he went out into the world and asked it questions to find out what it was really like. Okay, so what's the problem? Why does that make the Bible seem embarrassing? The first is because when epistemology precedes ontology, it makes the bi- what the Bible says seem implausible. Let me explain that. After the Enlightenment, many people put the Bible on a bookshelf and they left it there to gather dust while they, they thought to themselves, let's leave that there for now while we reach our own conclusions about the universe around us, rather than letting this old book tell us what to believe. Let's form our own conclusions. And so people did their science. This is epistemology, by the way. They're, they're making inquiries about the universe. And sure enough, they started, people like David Hume, you might have come across him, started saying things like, well, we, we never observe miracles in the universe and so this, this book that talks about miracles must be talking nonsense because we've never seen a miracle they just don't happen so that's embarrassing the Bible is now talking nonsense this way round makes the Bible seem implausible the second reason is that the Bible basically insists that we go back to this it it insists that it will tell us about the nature of reality and based on what it tells us, we put it first, we can then think for ourselves. It insists on that way around. So that seems unenlightened. Immanuel Kant, another philosopher in 1784, wrote an essay called What is Enlightenment? And he said that if you have things this way round, then you're actually intellectually immature you're letting other people tell you what to think instead of making that decision for yourself. That's immaturity. It's the equivalent of Bell and Mulan and Lyra all just caving in to their cultures and not resisting them at all. So that's embarrassing. The Bible asks us to naively trust it instead of relying on our critical thinking. Those are reasons why this shift makes the Bible seem embarrassing. Do you want a second just to discuss that on your tables and see if it makes sense? Turn into your groups for a second and try and describe that to each other, what I've just said. We don't need to be embarrassed, and I've heard Bernie critiquing this view already over here, for one simple reason, and that is the Enlightenment switch isn't as enlightened as it seems, and it has a big stumbling block. Which is, if you put your knowing first, so you put like, you know, I'm not having a go at science, but you put your science first, and then from your science, you build a picture of the universe. How do you know if that method works? Because how do you know what there is to be known? And how do you know what is real but can't be known? Okay. <laughs> um, what, how, basically, let's, let's put it like this. How do you know the limits of your knowledge if you start with your knowledge? It's, uh, let me give you an, ex- an illustration. It's a bit like insisting you're safe to drive a car blindfolded because you can feel the controls. That's what it's like. But you can't see the road in front of you, and you don't even know if you're on a road. You might be on a beach. So all of your knowing is like the controls. You can feel them, and you know, you know, you can feel the controls. You feel like you're, you know where you're going, but you can't build an accurate picture of reality because you don't know whether you're on a road or not. <laughs> Or what the road does. When you start with epistemology and build your ontology from scratch, you either have to assume that your knowledge is 100% reliable and ultimately unlimited. Because you can eventually discover everything that there is to be known. Or you have to admit that human knowledge is mostly reliable and limited And then you have to admit that you will never reach a complete picture of what existence is and what the universe is and what might be outside the universe and what we can't know but might be out there to be known. You can only build an incomplete picture. Now, most people are happy with that. They're happy to admit that our knowledge is finite, we are limited, we're generally reliable but not completely, and that's fine. We'll never reach a complete picture but we'll sort of maybe get close. And yet, they believe that we know enough to say that this approach is much better than that approach, even though they don't even know what this is. So, don't let people tell you, I mean, they're not going to say this in these words, but don't let them tell you that starting with ontology and then following it with epistemology is naive, which is what people think about believing the Bible. You know, if you put the Bible first and uh, you know you trust it in, uh, instead of your critical thinking abilities, and maybe when you disagree with it, you take the Bible as true, that's naive, they'll say. Don't let them tell you that, because it's not naive. Because they are naive by thinking that starting with their way of knowing, they can build a complete and accurate picture of the way the universe is and the way existence is, um, enough to say that the other way around is naive. If I've uh, lost you a bit there, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm I'm moving on to my second reason why we might be embarrassed about the Bible and things get simpler again, okay? So that is, this is the way we think. Next, we're going to talk about the story we tell ourselves about the way we think. And I think this will ring bells with you, okay? We think in a certain way, we 21st century British people, and we justify the way we think as a good thing. We live in a secular culture, and we say secular is a good thing. Yes, Catherine? Um, I just wanted to say, like, if you're you know, doing the ontology first, then if there's only one truth, then how, how is trusting the Bible as true at the beginning? Yep. How do you like, choose the Bible out of any of the religious books or way of thinking? Yes, good question. Thank you very much. We might come on to that later. <laughs> yeah. That is a good question. What we'll do is um that's a big question. So we will come back to it a little bit at the end. But then actually the whole series of Sunday at six talks will be looking at the, the world from the Bible's point of view. And one question we can ask ourselves is does this make sense of what we see? And um maybe we'll see the answer to that. Good question, thank you. So in a nutshell, this is the story we tell ourselves. We are very rational people. We try to be balanced and unbiased. And we don't fall for illogical things or superstitions, that sort of thing. Would you agree that's how we think in the UK? Okay. And the story goes, we made this change in the Enlightenment. I've got some more boxes here. Reason. ah, Perfect. Reason. Now... People place all sorts of rubbish on top of reason. Superstition. Other biased and irrational things. Okay, oh, save that one for later. Now, the story goes, in the Enlightenment, we rid ourselves of biased and irrational things. And you know what? We rid ourselves of superstition. And we took away faith and religion so that we were left with reason. And reason was a great foundation on which to build our knowledge of things. So reason, what, why is that such a good foundation? Well, it's, uh, it's neutral. You're not going to be biased by your religious beliefs. Your reason is neutral. It's logical. You can go back to basics and work up from there to the answer. It's self-correcting for the same reason. Nobody claimed that reason was infallible, but they did say it was self-correcting. So even if you didn't get the right answer, you could discuss it amongst yourselves and people together would get the right answer. It's evidence-based. It's scientific. And it's gained through experience and critical thinking, not mindless rote learning. Why should you have to learn the Psalms and the Ten Commandments? That's ridiculous. You can use your reason. And actually, this is why we don't have much rote learning in our education system. We have a lot more critical thinking, which isn't, it's not a bad thing. I'm not having a go at the Enlightenment. There are lots of good things that came out of the Enlightenment, but there are some bad things as well. So reason, what a solid foundation. Now, why does that story that we tell ourselves about the way we think make the Bible seem embarrassing? It's because the Bible is like adding all of these things back onto reason again. You know, faith and religion, exactly. That's what we're all about. And superstition, maybe, maybe. Some Christians might be superstitious. And definitely biased and irrational things. Miracles, um, you know, we're, we're saying that there is a God out there who tells us what we can and can't do. We're very biased as Christians. Now, these things, they say, hold us back and keep us in the dark. We'd be much better getting rid of them and going back to reason. You remain a bit of a foolish idiot if you uh, keep all of those things on there because you're stifling the self-correction and the neutral and the logical evidence-based nature of reason. So, that's embarrassing. The Bible is trying to suppress the way you think. It's suppressing you and keeping you in the dark. Uh, on the top of that piece of paper where you've got the three ladies there, Lyra the whole point of the trilogy His Dark Materials is exactly that point organised religion is oppressing you and keeping you in the dark and Lyra is awesome because she breaks free from all of that and she uh, learns to be herself and rule herself and all that sort of stuff but we don't need to be embarrassed because the story that's told about the way we think is not the whole truth There's actually a box missing from our story, as you've seen down here. And this is assumptions about reality. These are your presuppositions, if you like philosophical terminology. And these sit underneath reason at all times. Okay. Phew, that could have gone wrong. So a person's reason is not neutral, actually. It's not unbiased, it's already affected by their assumptions about reality. So for example, it isn't possible to say, when it comes to the existence of God, I'll just see where the evidence takes me. Have you ever heard that? It's not possible to say that. Because your assumptions about reality will create a set of criteria in your mind about what evidence is good enough. And that criteria for evidence will push you in one direction or the other. That's where your presuppositions, your assumptions come into play long before you hit reason. Now, as we shift from modernity to post-modernity, people are actually starting to take this on board. And so we do have a bit less optimism about our ability to know everything and to reason our way to the truth all the time. In practice, it means that we're willing to be tolerant of others' views, because who are we to say that they're wrong? We're also a bit more open to some of these things, a bit more open to spirituality. So why is the Bible still embarrassing? And now I'm going to talk about our third thing. Let me just move these boxes out of the way and try not to make them fall on my head. That was number two, the story we tell ourselves about the way we think. We've looked at the way we think. Now we're going to talk about the way our culture views spirituality. We do get it, all of us, that reason is a good thing. And evidence is a good foundation for building knowledge. Everyone agrees that. And yet there's gotta be something more out there, people will say. We can't find it with our reason and knowledge and our science, perhaps. But when, when we die, there's got to be something more. I don't believe that people just die. And they're, there, there are very few people who are 100% convinced that all we are is atoms and molecules and whatever, and when you die, you're just dust, and who cares? Um, most people are happy to admit that there seems to be more meaning to that in life. Something inside us, as I heard Bernie saying before, says maybe there is a spiritual world. That makes sense to us. So, have you ever heard somebody describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious? Yeah. Spirituality, yes. Bible, no. God or gods, maybe. Yeah. Bible, no. And here's why. We, uh, we understand spirituality as, as something above us. So here we go. Down here is the physical world. That's the world that we inhabit, and above it, there is a spiritual world. Here we go. But it's not easy to find the spiritual world. I don't know if you agree, but there seems to be some sort of gap between us and the spiritual world. And we need to bridge that gap. There we go. So, to bridge the gap, you might recognize some of these. We uh, look inside ourselves for feelings about God and the transcendent. Maybe we try to empty ourselves through meditation and hope that, whoop, that creates a portal through to the spiritual world. Or a lot of people will try things like spiritual charms, they'll try necromancy, speaking to the dead. They might try fortune telling. All of these ways are attempts to bridge this gap between the physical and the spiritual world. It's unlikely that a pers- one person would do all of those things. You might have somebody who's into meditation, and you have another person who's into fortune-telling, another person who's into necromancy, but you know, they might be separate people. They won't all do them all. So what's the problem? Why does that make the Bible seem embarrassing? It's that the Bible doesn't encourage the kind of attempts to bridge the gap that I just mentioned. And in fact, it flatly condemns them which puzzles us and makes us think, what's going on? Isn't the Bible interested in us reaching the spiritual realm? What's it on about? It seems like the Bible is actually out of touch with our understanding of the spiritual realm. So that's embarrassing. The Bible hasn't kept up. It's out of date. It's an old-fashioned book. It doesn't even get spirituality. But we don't have to be embarrassed for two reasons. There's a problem with our view of spirituality. The first is that it comes from us, so how do we know that it's true? Unless you're pretty convinced that one of your bridges is the correct one, how do you know? How do you know that that is the contact with the spiritual world? It's self-taught, but it isn't really subject to reason, so it's not really self-correcting. It's not really logical. You can't really test it. So it basically boils down, I'm sorry to say, to speculation here we are in our physical world and we speculate about how to get to the spiritual world and that is 21st century spirituality that's the first problem the second problem is that in a way the bible actually isn't interested in us reaching the spiritual realm which may surprise you and that's because it puts the gap in a different place oh dear look at that Okay, I hope you can see over the mess there. I'm going to write physical back on here where it was. And I'm going to write spiritual more or less where it was. They're in one bubble. The Bible is not interested in us reaching the spiritual realm. Because there's another gap that's much bigger. And that is the gap between the physical and the spiritual realm. In other words, all created things and their creator when you're reaching for a higher power using meditation or emptying yourself or doing necromancy you're only ever reaching the created order you never make it to god you only make it to creation and the bible is interested in you meeting god In fact, it definitely doesn't want you to reach out to the spiritual realm and think you've made it to God because then you're committing idolatry. You're worshipping, you remember that verse in Romans, they worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator. Those created things might well be spiritual, but they haven't bridged the gap to God. So let me finish, I've gone on a bit, sorry, with a different way to think how do I see the Bible as a Christian? Why aren't I embarrassed? And in fact, let me put that question back to you. If you're a Christian, then you can answer this question. In your groups, on your tables, why aren't you embarrassed to live by an old book, the Bible? Discuss that for a few minutes. Yeah, and that direction is really important. God down to people. People never find God. God reaches out and finds people. Yeah, great, so you've covered all the things I've got here. First of all, there's no shame in admitting that we need, to, we need God to tell us about himself. There's no shame in admitting that we, we can't discover God by ourselves. That's actually a, you know, let's not blow our own trumpets. That's a very humble and sensible thing to say. You wouldn't be embarrassed to watch a YouTube video or read a book, you know, if you needed to do some work on the car that you couldn't work out for yourself. This is much bigger than that. We're talking about discovering the creator of everything who is completely different in being to the created order. That gap, as Malcolm has rightly pointed out, is too big for us to cross. We need him to cross it to come down to us. A computer game character has more chance of discovering and getting to know the player of the game than we do of getting to know God and discovering him by ourselves. That's how ridiculous it is. Unless God tells us about himself. It's revelation. And the Bible claims to be exactly that God telling us about himself. Imagine if I sent my CV to Chris, and Chris picked up my CV and said, Do you really expect me to believe that this piece of paper tells me about a real person called Sam? Oh, please. And I would think, Yes, that's exactly what I expect you to believe. It's a CV. That's what God expects us to believe with the Bible. He says, This is my revelation about myself. I expect you to believe it and to receive it as such. And when you do read it like that, as we've said a few times around the room, it stacks up. It makes sense of reality. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about the Bible's reliability. We'll be talking about the fact that you can trust the Bible, even in these controversial matters that people are talking about. You can trust the Bible, as Bernie will be talking about in a few weeks' time, where science... Of or our understanding of right and wrong seems to call it into question. And it stacks up as a coherent way to understand life and ourselves. There's a barbershop out there that says something like, um, the, what is it, the complete image for men or something like that? And uh, just reminded me of Genesis 1, where it says that people are made in God's image. <laughs> and um, that view of, sorry, I'm getting a bit off track here, but that view of life explains an awful lot of things as a, uh, Think we were talking about the day away a bit, weren't we, Hannah? That was uh, being created in God's image it explains a lot about why people are sitting here in this room doing this today and dogs aren't. <laughs> and finally, again, as has been mentioned, you end up meeting the author of this book if you take it seriously. Imagine if I was uh, going through a cupboard for something my wife Claire had bought earlier in the day, and someone came along and said, I actually can't believe what you're doing, Sam. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Sam, you you must be naive and lacking in education. And then finally they get to the point and say, Sam, Claire doesn't exist. That's how a lot of Christians feel when they're looking in the Bible for answers. Because they're looking in the Bible for answers and somebody comes along and says, you must be naive, you must be uneducated. God doesn't exist. And you're there like, I know that God exists, I know God, I've known him for years. It's a relationship. And if you're not a Christian this evening, then you need to meet God, which involves him reaching out to you. You can't get there by yourself. I'm going to finish with some words of the Bible. Sorry, I've gone a bit over time. These summarize a few significant parts, and you'll know them well if you're a Christian. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send, God sent, okay? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hebrews 1 says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, being the ancestors of the writers, to so the book of Hebrews, a Jewish person. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Lots we could say about that. None of these people were sort of super sensitive spiritual sages Looking for a revelation from God, and they just stumbled upon it. These were normal people who were interrupted in their normal daily routine by a God who just wouldn't take "no for an answer. A lot of these people are like, "No, God, I'm, you're not sending me." Moses at the burning brush, "No, you're not sending me." And God is like, "Yes, I am." Jeremiah, three times, I think, like, "No, you're not sending me." God is like, "Yes, I am sending you." God spoke in the past to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways over a long stretch of history, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son, who also just happened to walk past people and say, follow me. These words from John 1 are, I think, the most profound, I mean, who am I to make a judgment on this, but I think they're the most profound statement about epistemology and ontology and about all of these things that have ever been written. And it's how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things, physical, spiritual, whatever, all things. If, if something exists, it's either God or it's created by God, because those are the only two things that exist. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Catherine, I guess the answer to your question is when a person has looked at all of the claims of the Bible, they then have to make a choice. Do they believe it or not? And in a way, the whole of the Bible is like one big court case where the evidence is presented, and you, the judge, in a way, have to make the decision do I believe it or not? And then the outcome of that, you have to decide do you believe what the Bible says about a future judgment day where you will not be the judge? but somebody else will, and that is God. One final discussion question just to let this settle in. What do you make of all that? Just turn quickly into your tables and discuss what do you make of everything we've looked at tonight?